0: Take your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 46. We're going to finish up Genesis 46 and move into Genesis 47 today as we continue the story through the life of Joseph. It's good to have the Shoemates here. They're in town today just for this morning. It's great to see them. They came in last night. We've got to spend some precious time with them. We've been supporting the Shoemates for a while in the missions the work. They do work with uh, MGM Mission, which is a Mexican gospel mission. They're Going to be transitioning to do more work with the uh, local seminary there. So exciting to see what God is doing in their lives. And it's great to have you here. Make sure you say hello if you had, didn't know they were present this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 46. Now, when you open your Bible, if you were just to pick up a Bible for the very first time and start reading like you would any other book, you would begin with Genesis 1 and you see immediately that God is the center of the scripture. And what does God do? But He creates. Uh, there's nothing, and then God. God speaks the world and everything that's in it into existence. God with his voice declares, let there be light and there is light, right? And then we see the creation of the world and we see God creating life and making life. He fills the earth with this teeming life. He creates man and woman, creates man out of the dust of the earth, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and fashions a woman. And he looks at everything he makes and God says it is very good. God is a creating God, a powerful creating God. And then you keep reading like one chapter and you see how, how quickly man sins and just ruins God's perfectly good uh, creation. We see God working from that point on to preserve life. We see the, old, the world uh, under the curse, wear, wearing down like a garment, groaning and travailing like a woman and labor in the God who creates life, preserves life through the coming of Messiah. We see that uh, described in Genesis chapter 3 as there will be one who will come, who will destroy the work of the serpent, and he will crush his head. And there will be a story we see there a few chapters later of the flood where God rescues a family from a violent and wicked world. And all throughout the Bible, God is preserving life from a culture of death. You know, in our world we live in today, in our culture that hates God with a vengeance, is it any wonder that we live in a culture of death? We live in a culture of exploitation. From everything we talked about last week, abortion to euthanasia to pornography to rampant drug use, our culture has embraced a nihilistic death cult mentality. We just, our culture as a whole has embraced that which is rejecting God and rejecting God's authority. As Christians... We live in a world that should be defined, our worldview should be defined by the Scripture. And the Scripture teaches us about a God who is in the work of preserving life. Our God is a God who preserves life. And God's purpose in Genesis, we see from the story of Joseph over and over again, has been... The, that they would live and not die. I have a couple of passages I want you to look at. First, Genesis 42, verse 2. Earlier on, Jacob tells his sons to go to buy food in Egypt for this purpose. He says, I indeed have heard that there is grain in Egypt. We go to that place to buy for us there. Why should they go and buy food? That we may live and not die. And later, Joseph recognized The reason God had sent him to Egypt in Genesis 45 and verse 5, he says, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you. Notice, why was he there? To do what? To preserve life. God has an interest in preserving life. The story of Joseph as a whole fits within God's work of seeking to save people from death. That is what God is doing. God delights in preserving life, and he chooses to preserve life in a very unique way in these chapters. Let's look at God's word. Before we do that, though, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that we can gather like this as your people in this room, and we can open your word. We pray for the time that we have set aside, that your spirit would speak to us through the power of your word. We thank you that you have spoken and that you've given it to us in your word. May we believe it and may we work your word out in our lives. I pray that we would have a life and a heart of faith towards your truth. And Father, no matter where we are, no matter where we find ourselves on the journey of life, or in our faith journey, may we take that next step this morning of living a life of faith, believing the God who is preserving life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at chapter 46, beginning in verse 31. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, towards the end of chapter 46, and we will see God preserving life in some very unique ways. First, we see God preserving life through a separation. Through a separation, God provided for the family. He worked to preserve their lives by separating them from the dominant culture around them. Look with me in verse 31. It says, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say... Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and all of our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. We find in this story a very interesting thing happening. First, there is a plan for a unique place. God has designed it so that the people, as they come out of the promised land and settle in Egypt, will be settling not in the cities with the people, but in a separate place in the land of Goshen, which is a very fertile plain area, uh, fertile, uh, it's right off from the Nile Delta area, and it'll be a perfect place for them, for their, for their um, cattle to graze. So Joseph says he's going to intervene on their behalf, he's going to go to Pharaoh, he's going to tell them that they've arrived there on the outskirts of Egypt, and they need a place to stay. They want a place that will support all their livestock. Now, Goshen, if you look in your Bible maps, you'll notice that Goshen is just far enough away for them to raise their livestock, but it's far enough away that they will not be influenced by the cultural strength of the Egyptian culture. They would not be inundated with Egyptians. They would not be swallowed up into Egypt. This is part of God's plan for the nation of Israel, that they'd be a unique people set aside and not part of the other nations. So in verse 32, how does he do this? He tells them, your occupation is shepherds. You're going to be feeding livestock. It's interesting here, they're not going to be a drain on society. In fact, they're bringing their flocks with them. They're bringing their animals with them. And then in verse 34, it's very interesting to me that Joseph tells them that they must be honest about their occupation. They must be straightforward in their dealings. Jacob was not exactly known to be someone who was honest. If you know anything about Jacob and know anything about his father and his grandfather, they often, when they were in a foreign place, maybe Egypt perhaps, they might lie about their relations maybe with their wife. I don't know. They might say something that would perhaps lead Pharaoh to doing something that would they would try to manipulate foreign powers by lying about themselves and their occupation often. And Joseph says, no, no, that's off the table. We are going to be straightforward and honest. You are going to tell them exactly what you do. Why? Because the Egyptians don't like you. The Egyptians are not going to like you if you're a shepherd. The Egyptians think shepherds are an abomination. Why? Well, the Egyptians were very cultured people. They, they had all kinds of buildings. If you, you can go today and see some massive buildings and things that the Egyptians did. They, they're, they're, if you go over uh, a couple of years ago, we went to England, we saw the uh, British Museum. They have an entire Egyptology room full of Egyptian sculptures, Egyptian mummies. They were a very cultured place, and people who kept cattle were considered like the low dregs of society. And they did not want anything to do with these smelly shepherds who lived out in the fields with their animals. And so God so designed that in order to have this very specific place, they would need a unique occupation. And that's part of God's plan. So Joseph actually deals with them and tells them, you need to have, make sure you're upfront, you need to be truthful, so you're going to settle in Goshen. Verse 1 of chapter 47, then Joseph. Went to told Pharaoh and said, My father, my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. Indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. He does exactly what he says he's going to do, and the the focus of their conversation next is on their occupation. Verse 2, he took five men from among his brothers, presented them to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to his brother, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks. The famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Therefore, please let your servant dwell in the land of Goshen. Notice that they would have been brought into Pharaoh's court in a way. They are there, presented before Pharaoh. And and rather than take positions within Pharaoh's court, under Pharaoh's tutelage, or in Pharaoh's schools, they have maintained their position as shepherds. They maintain who they are. They're honest. They're not going to be swallowed whole by Egypt. They are a peculiar people, a nation that would form as their own nation even within Egypt. But they would have their own unique identity. In verse 5, Pharaoh agrees and he gives the land to Isaac's family. He says, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, to make them chief herdsmen over my land livestock. He's so impressed by Joseph's brothers and his family that he offers them to become his chief herdsman. Maybe he saw how healthy their animals were, perhaps. We're not really sure why, but there's no indication that any of the brothers took him up on this offer. In fact, the brothers here were there for a specific location and for a specific place. Now, I want to apply this to Christians because the application for Christians is very interesting. God, when he dealt with Israel, he chose to protect Israel by separating them from the world, by forming a unique nation. This was part of God's plan for them. God separated them from the world so that Messiah would come through the Jewish line. He would be through a Jewish nation. And if the Jews had fully integrated into Egypt and had become Egyptians, that plan would have been under attack. The intermarriage was a problem throughout all of the Old Testament as you read that. So God saw fit to separate the Jews and to make them a unique people. And Christians are called to be unique from the world. Christians are definitely called to be unique. 1 John chapter First uh, John chapter uh, 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And what this means is that God primarily is telling us we should not adopt the thinking, the worship, or the priorities of the world. But notice this is very important. Don't miss what I'm saying here. And that is God protected the nation of Israel by separating them from the world. But God is not calling Christians to be separated completely from the world in the same way. In fact, Christians are called to go into the world. Christians are called to go into the world around them to spread the gospel of salvation. The the whole, the whole message of the Great Commission necessitates you to go into the world. While while the Jews were being separated out from Egypt, they were not called to go into Egypt and to evangelize Egypt. They were called to be a unique nation, set apart for God's purposes. There is a unique call to Christians and a unique call to the church that we should not lose. And that is this, that God says, uh, here's our verse of do not love the world, but notice what, what, what Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world you see it, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That that means that we're not done when we are here. Our temptation as Christians, as as Baptists in the South, has been you invite people to church and you get them in the building. You, You say, come to me, where the Bible says, go to them. We are called to be going to see people, to be with people who don't know Jesus. And this is what God has called us to do. If you keep going in John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. God knew we could never reach him, so he sent Christ to us. So, so we are to go into the world. In fact, in Philippians, we're called to shine. As lights in the sky you do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world or lights in the sky or stars in the sky. You are to be in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That makes us a little bit uncomfortable because we we like our Christian friends. We like our Christian community. We like to surround ourselves with people who think like us and who have our same priorities, but that is not a comfort that Christians should have. Christians are called to go into the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. Don't get caught up in secluding yourself. This is a new dispensation for our church. God has called the children to go into the world and to confront the world with the truth. And in this time, God was preserving life by separating out Israel making them a unique nation so that the Messiah would come through that line. And now God is preserving life in this world, in this time, in this dispensation, by calling us believers, sending us into a lost and dying world so we can call others to come to faith and the one who can give them life. That's what we're called to do. Amen. God calls us through, yes, personal holiness, separation, but never, God does not call us to be our own unique people in the same way that God called Israel to be their own unique people. We are to go into the world. If we're not going into the world, we're missing something. Go into the world. Secondly, notice that God is preserving life despite our perspectives. Now, one of the things that's the saddest part of Joseph's story, as we talked about at length last week, and I know it was heavy last week as I thought talked about Jacob's life, as Jacob was a man of sorrow. Jacob was, if he was in a doctor's office today, they would prescribe him about four different antidepressants. Jacob faced extreme emotional turmoil and trouble. And I want you to notice what happens because Jacob, when he looked at his life, I want you to see his perspective on his life in verse 7 through 10. Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of my years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Now, it is striking, I have to note, that it is Jacob who blesses Pharaoh, and always in the Scripture, it's the, it's the greater who blesses the lesser. So Jacob here goes as, a, as an old man, one of the patriarchs, a shepherd, and goes in before Pharaoh, and he recognizes that he is, in this, sen- in this sense, the one who's greater in the room. And he blesses Pharaoh, and Pharaoh recognizes he's in the presence of a great patriarch, a great man. And he respects him. He says, how many days, how many are the days of your years? In our King James, New King James, it says, how old are you? But notice Jacob's reply. He begins by saying, the days of my pilgrimage, my days are like a wandering, and unstable existence with no firm footing, no place to call home. I used to be in home and now I am wandering again. These days are 130 years. I've lived a long life, but the life I've lived has not been good. He says, my days have been few and evil, or hard, or bad. He's older than any of us will ever live. And he looks at his life and he asks the question, where did all the days go? All the days that he had were evil, they were harsh, bad, hard, hard. And it's not enough that the days he lived had been short, but the days he lived had been very unfulfilling. In fact, he says here, I didn't live up to the expectations I had. This is the greatest weakness of him as an individual. He tells Pharaoh, I did not attain to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in their pilgrimage. In other words, my dad and my granddad were really giants, and I never quite made it. My life's been a failure. He, he, he looks at his life, and he sees himself as being extremely inadequate. He says, I judge myself to never attained what they had. He's extremely discouraged with his life. It's important that Pharaoh doesn't discount him. No one steps in and says, no, Dad, you're really pretty good. That was pretty, you know, you're a great guy or anything like that. Nobody says anything. But I want you to notice God's response to this. Although Jacob despised his life, you know, God... God blessed him in ways that he never could have anticipated. Look at verse 11. God is in the business of blessing life. Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. In the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded, then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number of their families. They got a possession, the best of the land. And we're going to see a comparison in just a moment that the people of Egypt did not fare quite as well. But God blessed Jacob. His assessment of his life was my days were few and evil, but God was still blessing. His perspective did not change the fact that God was blessing. They had as much food as they needed. Verse 12 tells us the famine that would oppress them, or had oppressed so many, would not oppress them because whenever they needed something, they had it. In fact, Joseph provided for his fathers and his brothers according to the number of their families. In other words, everybody had whatever they needed. Nobody was hungry. Joseph provided what they needed. God provided through Joseph a way to preserve life despite Jacob's perspective that his life was a wreck. Jacob looked at his life, and he says, I have lived a terrible life. My life has been a loss. I am am depressed about my life. I I am looking at my life as evil and short, and God's still blessed. God will bless despite your perspective. You may have a bad perspective about your life. You may look at your life and you may say, my life stinks. My life is terrible. My life has been nothing. It has been barren. My life has been horrible. I have made all the wrong decisions in all the wrong times, and, and God has not blessed me. But you know what? God is blessing people, and you have to open your eyes to the blessings of God we keep going, we see that God is preserving life despite how we may feel about our life. And God preserves life, this last thing, through here, through some negotiation. We're going to see in verses 13 through 26 that God was at work within Joseph's skill, preserving the lives not only of the children of Israel, but also of the people who lived in Egypt. God uniquely gifted Joseph with an ability to be an administrator. And this goal of all this was to preserve Life. And a way of thinking about this is that God is at work preserving life of even those who are lost. God loves people. God loves people. God cares about when people die, even if they don't care about him. Let's look at, there's the first year, beginning in verse 13. We see that there's a severity of famine in the land, verses 13 and 14. So verse 14 tells us, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land, and he bought, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. The famine was so heavy or severe. That word kavod is the same word that we use for glory. It has the idea of heaviness. It was a very significant famine, and Joseph purchases, or they purchased the grain from Joseph, and without the grain, they languished. They were limp, like a plant that hasn't been watered. All the money that came from the people went into the house of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was able to amass great control. And then in verse 15, we see the money failing. Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. And so Joseph negotiates there. He says, give us your livestock, and I will provide bread. And so they gave of their livestock, and he fed them with bread in exchange for their livestock that year. And either the, after the money became worthless and no one had any money left, God was able to still preserve life through this negotiation. Then it moves into the second year in verse 18, and we see the second year process. The money is gone now. They say we have no way of paying for our food. Our livestock is gone now. We have no way of paying for our food. The only thing we have left is the land in our bodies. And the question, the request is, why should we die? Why should the land go unworked or fallow? Joseph and Pharaoh, please, buy the land for bread, that we would work the land, give us seed, and the land and we would live. God is interested in preserving life. And through this series of negotiations, Joseph's able to acquire the land. In verse 20 through all the way through verse 24, we see that that there is a negotiation here between Joseph and the people as they they set the, the stage here for Joseph's plan to be, that the the land is, he takes their land, but he has negotiated out a payment that they would pay one-fifth of their harvest back to Pharaoh, and he could have taxed way more than this. But he did this in a way that they would live and not die. And their response in verse 25 is, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord. We will be Pharaoh's servant. So Joseph made it law over the land of Egypt to this day. Joseph's work saved Lives. God saved lives through Joseph. They were willing to serve Pharaoh and Joseph. God cares about the health of His children, but God also cares about every single person, whether they're Egyptian or Jew. Because because God makes His sun rise on the evil and the good, He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God cares about people, and you ought to care about people too. You ought to care about the lives of people, even those who aren't believers. You want to have a heart for them, a heart to show them the light of the gospel and a heart to care for people and to speak the truth to them. Lastly, I'd like to point out that God is preserving life through fulfilled promises. We see starting in verse 27 that God's promises are fulfilled here that Jacob's life was blessed and Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. They had possessions there and they grew and multiplied exceedingly. What a contrast between the people of Egypt who could not multiply exceedingly, who were starving and had to reach out to be bought out by Pharaoh, and Joseph and his family grew and prospered. Jacob's family was blessed in tremendous ways. God fulfilled his promise there. Secondly, not only was Jacob's life blessed as he was fruitful, Jacob's life was extended. In verse 28 it says, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. You go back, and I'm not going to do this right now, but you go back and you start marking all the times that Jacob said that he was ready to die. It starts in Genesis 37 when he finds out that Joseph is missing, and then it happens again, and again, and again. Joseph says, "I just want to." um, Jacob says, "I want to give up. I want to go with my gray hair down to the grave." He uses those words over. And over. He has given up on life, and what does God do? God extends his life. Let me just say this. If you're here, you still got unfinished business. If you're here, God has a plan for you. Don't give up. You older folks, we have a great uh, group of people in our church, a lot of diversity. We have little kids. We have older folks. We have the elderly. We have all different, you know, age groups, and I think it's amazing the attitude of some older folks That they say, God's got me here for a purpose and I'm excited about doing that. Whatever it is. Whether it's just encouraging. Or whether it's, you know, being a help to someone. Whether it's passing wisdom on to someone. Don't sit around and say, i got nothing to offer. God God has you here probably longer than you think. And, you know, some of us have uh, have friends and have loved ones who've had very short lives. And, of course, that always hurts and burdens us when that happens. But you know what? For those who God has given a long life, you want to thank the Lord for every moment, and God will extend your life until he's done with you. And at that point, then you can stop serving God, (laughs) because you'll be in his presence, and then it's time to worship God. You see, God has you here, and he will keep extending it, extending your life over and over again. But you notice his heart. His heart was in Canaan, the promised land. It comes comes a time when he actually is close to death. And in verse 29, it says, The time drew near that Israel must die, and he called his son Joseph. And he said to him, Now I have found favor in your sight. Put your hand under my thigh. Deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he, Joseph, said, I will do as you have said. And and he, Jacob, said, swear to me, and he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed, or on the head or the staff that he held there. Jacob's heart was to end up where God had placed him, which was the promised land, and he entrusts Joseph, none of the other brothers, he entrusts Joseph to be the one to carry this forward. He says, "I, I want you to swear to me, you will not leave me here, take me back, where God has promised our people to be. Now, God is a God of life. God is a God who makes life. Life is God's idea. God breathes life into humanity. He created life out of nothing. Every breath you have is a gift from God. He cares about human beings because human beings are made in the image of God. Hang with me for a second. Because God, as the giver of life, gives us the life in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, when Jesus comes, the Bible tells us about his character in John 1, 1.4. And 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In John 5, Jesus says that as the Father has life in himself, that is, as the Father, has the one who generates life, who gives life, who does not need outside sources to give life, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Jesus has life in himself. None of us can say that. We have life in Christ alone. But the Son has life in in himself. We keep going. We see in verses like John 6, 33, that Jesus calls himself the bread of life. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, but he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is that life giver, and he is the bread of life. What's the job of the good shepherd? Well, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I may come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. God is the giver of life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. Jesus is that life spoken of in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We serve a God who is the God of life. He's the God who preserves life. He's the God who gives life. And through faith, in Jesus' name, we can have life. John 20, verse 31. But these things, the book of John, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, that is by believing, that through faith you may have what? Life in his name. You want life in the name of Christ? You can have life through faith. God is in the business of making life and preserving life. In contrast to this, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. John 8 tells us, you are your father, the devil, the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. You think about that, Satan is identified as a murderer, and God is the one of the life giver. God is one who's preserving life. We see that in the story of Joseph. God did all kinds of things to preserve life, because God is a God of life. I want to close by asking you this. You know, our culture today is a culture of death. It's a demonic, satanic philosophy. And I encourage you as Christians to cling to Christ, who is the one who has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. And here's how this works in practice. A lot of Christians doubt that God wants what's best for them. A lot of Christians think that if I follow God, that I'm on, the path of, I'm on the path of loss, on the path of sacrifice. I can't live my best life if I follow Christ. I can't pursue life if I follow Jesus. I mean, following Jesus means, means saying no to everything. Like, I can't do that. That would be pursuing the opposite of life. Do you know that when God made life and God preserves life, that God's plan for you is life? And that by living, has God has called you to live. That means living in submission to God's word. That means obeying God, believing that God has your best in mind. That is pursuing a life that is good for you, that is preserving life. And I remember the, where I was. I was a college student. I remember where I was at the Wilds Christian Camp. When I was reading my Bible one day before camp got started, and it dawned on me like out of the blue. And I know this is like elementary thoughts, like some of you are thinking, it took you to college to get this down. I know, I know. But it dawned, like it, it, as I was reading God's word, a thought came to my mind, and I realized, you know, Satan does not want what's best for my life. Uh, Satan is here to kill, to destroy. And God is the one who wants what's best for my life. God is a life giver and a life preserver. So why is it that I get confused and I think, well, maybe Satan has a point there. Maybe God doesn't know what he's talking about. We are so easily deceived. We look at God's rules for our life and we say, I don't know. Is that really the case? I mean, what can God really know? Does God really know how that works? Or God's plans are not the best. My plans are the best. You realize what you're doing. You're, you're going away from the life giver and life preserver, the one who is there to preserve life, the one who is there who gives life, who loves you and has your best fo- in mind for you, who is doing everything he can. And we are just like Jacob sometimes. We look at our life and we say, yeah, my life is pretty bad. Like I had all these problems and all these things. Don't you realize that without that, life could not have been preserved? Joseph says much. He says, don't be mad at yourself. God sent me here to preserve life. Without Joseph there, without Jacob's pain, there would have been no grain, And no life. God used the circumstances of wicked men to fulfill his purpose. God can use any circumstance in your life to fulfill his purpose. And following God's way, rejecting the wicked one's way, is the only way to living a life that is filling and fulfilling. Now, it all begins with faith in Christ. I have this verse up from John chapter 20 because this is so key and I want to end here. John chapter 20 tells us that we can have life in Christ only one way, through Christ, believing in his name. And friend, if you've never come to Christ humbly, humbly, recognizing that you're a sinner, recognizing that your sin has offended an almighty God and that his forgiveness is there on the table for you if you come believing in his name, unless you come to Christ, you are still in your sins. You are still going to pay the penalty for your sins. Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, but those sins are only paid for when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. Acts 16, 31. John three sixteen tells us, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You want everlasting life? From the life giver and the life preserver, the one who preserves life and gives life, that's God. He gives it through Jesus Christ alone. And friend, if you've been working your way to heaven, so to speak, if you thought you could righteous your way into heaven, if you could do enough good things that God will one day look smilingly on you, you realize that you are doing a fool's errand. You will never attain to the righteousness that God requires, which is why Jesus, the one who has life in himself, had to come and die so that you might live. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've been sitting in church for your life or you, maybe this is your first time here and you've never heard this before, you never realized that salvation is a free gift from God for you, make that today the day you trust Jesus as your Savior and you have a home in heaven reserved for you, which we sang about today, and you can be satisfied. You can turn away from those husks that you've been trying to feed yourself on, your own righteousness and your own good works. You can cling to the God who's already done everything. When Christ died on the cross, He claimed it is, or He proclaimed it is finished. By proclaiming it is finished, meaning there's nothing left for you or me to do to earn our way to heaven. Christ did it all. Amen. God is the God who gave His life for us because He's the God who created life, and He preserves life. What an amazing God we serve. Let's bow with prayer, Father. We ask today. You'd help us to be people who are driven to your word and driven to submission to you, to have our life committed wholly to you, knowing that you are the God who has our best in mind. And you're doing things that are beyond our perspective. You're doing this. You're calling us to be, to be in this world, but not of this world, to be reaching this world with the message of Christ. Father, if there's someone here today who has never trusted you as their personal Savior, who has never believed on your name and been saved, may today be the day where they finally humble their hearts. They confess their sin to you, Lord, believing in you and knowing that you are the one who has the power to forgive them. They would stop trusting in themselves, but they would trust in you once for all. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you need to deal with God right now is the time to do it. As the pianist plays, I'd ask you to just bow your heart before God. And say, Lord, please forgive me for my sin, whatever that sin is. Name it before God. Those of you who are not yet saved, I would ask you to put on your blue card. There's a little spot there you can say, I'd like to talk to somebody, and you can mark on the back, I need to talk to somebody about how to get saved. Have someone open a Bible with me and show me from God's Word what the Bible says about this. God does not want you to be ignorant about your eternal state, He wants you to know where you'll be if you happen to die on the way home today. Come talk to me. Ask somebody to share the Bible with you. We'd love to let somebody talk to you today before you leave this room. Father, as we continue to pray, I pray we would be submissive to you, that we would give all of ourselves to you in submission, knowing that you care, what, care about us, you, know, you want know what's best for us, as we give it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.